Good morning, Rob Fay. Are you ready for me to start recording? The facility you are trying to record this show is under surveillance. This facility has been compromised. Please find a new location to record Rob Fay Nation podcast. Self-destruct mode starts in 5, 4, 3, 2. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. Welcome to the Rob Fay Nation podcast. An extension of Rob Fay Nation Radio. A new way of enjoying sports. Each week, Vancouver-based sports brought to you from a different location. Please be warned. This podcast will be monitored by those looking to tear down. We will rise above with fresh content and a new perspective. Rob Fay Nation. Rob Fay Nation. You know that I'm the cream of the crop. The cream of the crop. The only thing that I can say right now is that I wish I thought of this sooner. I am Rob Fay, and welcome to Rob Fay Nation Podcast, an extension of Rob Fay Nation Radio. For the first time, maybe ever in my career, completely unfiltered, no rules, just one on one. You and me talking Vancouver based sports, and we will do it every week right here from the Rob Fay Nation studios. All right, I'm going to get right to it because I can sit here and wax on poetically about how I want to be number one. How I want you to download and subscribe and listen to me and all of the things that we all know that I already want. But I want to get to the guests because this show doesn't just have one guest. No, it doesn't have two, three, four, five. How about 12? Because I wanted to hit this ground running. I wanted everybody in this city to say, holy shit, this is different. I need to be a part of the Rob Fay Nation, and you have your opportunity right now. If you're a Canuck fan, this podcast is built for you this week. 12 guests, all Vancouver Canuck play-by-play guys. We go all the way back to the beginning. You name it, if they have sat behind the microphone, we will hear from them today. Let's introduce you to the 12 on this week's show. Jim Robson, National Hockey Hall of Fame member. John Abbott has called games for both Vancouver Canucks and Toronto Maple Leafs. Rick Ball, Hockey Night in Canada, called games for both Vancouver Canucks and Calgary Flames. John Shorthouse, current television voice of the Canucks, entering his 22nd season in Vancouver. Ron Barnett, worked Vancouver Canucks broadcasts before turning his focus to the Canadian Football League. Brendan Batchelor, current radio voice of the Vancouver Canucks for Sportsnet 650. Jim Hewson, Hockey Night in Canada, considered by some to be the greatest hockey play-by-play in the modern era. Joey Kenwood, broadcast Vancouver Canucks games for TSN 1040. Bernie Pascal, original face of Vancouver Canucks hockey on television. Five-time recipient of the Foster Hewitt Award for Excellence in Sports Broadcasting. Dan Russell, Canucks play-by-play for first-ever pay-per-view broadcasts. Host of Sports Talk, Canada's longest-running sports show in radio history. We will also hear clips from Danny Gallivin, Jim Cox and J.P. McConnell. Now, back to a host with no National Hockey League experience, Rob Fay. Oh nice. Software that is already clapping back and it is only episode one of Rob Fay Nation Podcast. We call those kinks. 
We will definitely work those out. Gentlemen, first and foremost, all I can say is that I am absolutely in awe of having all of you guys here at the exact same time, in the exact same place. I'm broadcasting from a little studio here, but to you, all I can say is thank you for making time for me tonight. I'm going to start by playing a clip from the late Danny Gallivan. Now, for those who might not be familiar with year one of the Vancouver Canucks back in 1970, here is Danny Gallivan calling the Vancouver Canucks and the Los Angeles Kings and his thoughts afterwards on a young broadcaster that he was ready to hang his hat on. Lundy over the Los Angeles line. It's 2-0 for the Kings. Lundy's pass across to Wilson. Getting set. Is he going to shoot it? Here it goes. It's goal! You know, I miss very much, and I'm not saying it because I'm in Vancouver. He knows how I feel about him. But Jim Robson decided to leave Hockey Night in Canada, and we no longer get him on the network. You get him out here. We're lucky. You are indeed lucky. There is a real pro. That is the voice of Danny Gallivan, considered by some to be one of the greatest voices in National Hockey League history. We have been so blessed in Canada, haven't we, with just great voices that almost transcend time. Listening back to 1970, Danny Galvin calling the Vancouver Canucks and the Los Angeles Kings, and he was more than willing to heap the praise on a young Jim Robson. And I want to thank Dan Russell, by the way, for getting me that footage. He interviewed Danny Galvin back in, I believe it was 1989, on Sports Talk, and uh, he was really kind enough. And thank you, Dan, for allowing me the opportunity to use that. But, Jim, before we get to everything that you did in the National Hockey League, and we'll start with this, because I'm going to ask a couple of different guys the exact same question can you remember, before you made it to Hockey Night in Canada and the National Hockey Hall of Fame, can you remember your very first audition or your very first job interview? Well, I guess my very first one in Port Alberni, I was 17 years old. I went over there and talked to the manager of the radio station. I had no training. I was just a high school student who was struggling in grade 12. I remember we talked, he said, well, I'll take you on for the summer, writing commercials. That was my job. That one thing, money came up, and I said, well, this is my first job away from home, so pay me what you think is fair. And believe me, he only paid me what was fair. It was $100 a month. That was my negotiating. The, the, I guess the interview went well enough to get the job. The sports announcer had just left that uh, radio station, so it's one of those cases of being in the right place at the right time. They said, can you do basketball? Sure, I played basketball in high school. So when I was 17, I started to do play-by-play of basketball in Port Alberni. Joey, I know you had a couple of different opportunities in the Western Hockey League with both the Vancouver Giants and the Swift Current Broncos. Can you take me back to the job interview that you had with the Broncos and, and getting into the Western Hockey League? I flew out to Saskatchewan to go to Swift Current, and I wound up actually having two different interviews for the same job. One day, I wound up meeting with two of the different program directors for the AM and FM station combo in town. There's only one uh, radio operation in Swift Current. So I wound up having uh, an interview with two different program directors and answered a variety of questions that they had. The radio station manager, though, wasn't in the building at that time. He was away on holidays. I wound up having a separate meeting with him actually at the local Boston Pizza restaurant. We went to the patio on the lounge outside, had a beer, and had another interview that way. And when I look back on it, I, I wouldn't say that was something that put it over the top, but it was just not your typical job interview. I wasn't sitting in a boardroom. I wasn't across from three or four different people. It was me having a cold one with the station manager. 
we got a couple of different Jims on this podcast. So, Jim Hewson, I would assume you had a first interview as well. Well, the first job I got, actually, I got it while I was in high school. I really didn't have to do much of an interview. It was offered to me. I was in my last year of high school. I was graduating from grade 12 in Fort St. John, and I was was in the drama club in the theater department of the high school, and we used to do these radio plays. And on Sundays, we would go into the radio station at CKNL in Fort St. John, and we would record our half-hour radio plays, you know, three or four times a year. And the fellow who everybody knew everybody in town, so I knew the manager of the radio station, and he was listening to our radio plays and came to me and said, would you like a part-time job reading news? And so that's how I began in the radio business. I started reading news on the weekends. I went to university for a short period of time, found it didn't pay very well, and went back up north and uh, worked on the radio, worked at the radio station. And then the next thing that happened was that the sports director, and there was only one person in the department, so the guy who was the sports guy, um, got a better job and moved to Edmonton. And I was the only guy left in the place who knew a puck from a football. And so I started broadcasting hockey and baseball games and fastball games and things like that. So I really didn't have to do an interview. It just kind of fell into my lap and I loved it. I think one thing that I'm going to enjoy in this podcast is realizing that even though all of you gentlemen that are on the line with me this evening, all of you guys have reached the height, the National Hockey League. And I also respect the fact that you guys have all gotten your humble beginnings, you know, small market BC or Ontario or Saskatchewan. And that to me is a really cool reminder that this is essentially the dream job, that there is a moment in time where you're broadcasting in these smaller markets and eventually you work your way towards the bright lights of the National Hockey League. I'm smitten already. Every person here has one thing in common in addition to, of course, broadcasting for the Vancouver Canucks, and that is your first. You all had your first game, so I wouldn't mind hearing from a bunch of you guys, and really in no particular order, your first memories of the time that you sat down and broadcast, be it a Vancouver Canuck game or wherever it was that you had your first National Hockey League game. Ron Barnett, I will start with you because I know that it was a little while back, but do you remember your first National Hockey League experience? I don't know who it was against. Probably the Edmonton Oilers. Probably about a 13-3 to ass-kicking <laughs> at the Pacific Coliseum because I, I saw Edmonton and the Canucks several times, and they, they waxed the Canucks every time out. That first year, there was such a demand for tickets that the Canucks came to BCTV and to our president, Ray Peters, and suggested they'd like to do a closed-circuit telecast. So that was really my baptism of Canuck hockey, and it was a game that was fed into the PNE Agrodome. Yeah, it was uh, almost like two days before the game, we decided to televise it, and there I was uh, doing the Canucks on the first year on a closed-circuit feed that we taped and then aired after midnight on BCTV. And during the course of that game, we had Clint Smith, we had Alex Shabicki, we had Walter Babe Pratt. Even Fred Cyclone Taylor was accompanied to the booth by his son, John Taylor, and they joined us on this closed-circuit telecast. So that was really my baptism with the Canucks. And to uh, answer your question, yeah, it was, uh, you know, first year, caught up in the excitement and wondering if I would get an opportunity. And there I was, I think it was about the eighth or ninth game the Canucks ever played. We did it on closed circuit and then taped the game for BCTV. Bernie, if you don't mind me asking, how did you find out that you were going to get the job with the Vancouver Canucks in those early stages when everybody was, you know, juggling a bunch of different balls all at the same time? How did you find out 
that it was going to be you that was taking on such a prestigious role? The conversation was basically, uh, I was the sports director of BCTV, and uh, we acquired the television rights to do the midweek package of the Canucks. And the president of the company, Ray Peters, and the vice president, Bill Elliott, confided in me that the negotiations were underway and said, if they come to finalization, you'll be doing the play-by-play of the uh, Vancouver Canuck games midweek package. And that was the extent of the interview. I was assigned to do it and was uh, thrilled to accept the challenge. Well, Faye, let me paint the picture for you a little bit here. Joe Bowen, the Hall of Famer, called his first NHL game for the Toronto Maple Leafs in 1982. I wasn't born yet. So you fast forward to 2013, and that's my break. At the age of 28, youngest play-by-play guy in the National Hockey League, calling games for essentially the team I grew up following and the broadcaster that I I grew up idolizing. So it it was crazy. I was so nervous. Joe's ended in a tie. Can you believe that? His first NHL game, he doesn't get to call a winner. The one that I was able to call was a 4 nothing shutout win for the Leafs in Nashville in the fall of 2013. Van Riemsdyk, Lupo, Bozak, and some guy named Kessel scored, and Jonathan Bernier earned the shutout. So it couldn't have gone much better. Jim Ralph by my side and couldn't have asked for any better, but I was so nervous at the beginning. It's hard to believe uh, that's the only time something probably went better for me than Joe Bowen, probably the only time ever. So I'll thank my lucky stars that it was the first NHL game, and I won't soon forget that one. That was one of the, the best moments of my career, and, and I'd go even further, one of the best moments of my life. very first game I did was Vancouver Canucks-Toronto Maple Leafs game early in the season. So as you can understand, the building was a buzz whenever those original six teams come into town, especially Toronto or Montreal, the place is electric. And I just remember sitting up there, I was working with Ryan Walter. It was my first ever National Hockey League broadcast and my first ever television hockey game as well. So I was as nervous as you could possibly be, as you might expect, but thrilled at the same time. And it was also the same night that they dedicated the gondola to Jim Robson who was one of my broadcasting heroes. So not only did I get to call that game in what was now anointed the Jim Robson broadcast gondola, but we got to talk to Jim in between the first and second periods as an intermission guest. So, I mean, what a night. It was just amazing. The Canucks wound up winning that hockey game, and you feel like you've, after all those years of slugging out in the in the junior ranks, trying to get better at what you do as a play-by-play guy, to finally get a chance to do a National Hockey League game, and it's Vancouver and Toronto and Jim Robson is there and you get to talk to him really was a dream come true when the job came up in 94 I knew I didn't have a chance at it but I I knew I wanted to apply for it I I did go up in the rafters of the Coliseum and called a period of a Canucks Kings game didn't get the job submitted the tape when I was 10 years old I submitted them both to try to tug on their heartstrings didn't get the job but that would have been the first time I kind of was in the rink calling a Canucks game from the rafters. I remember uh, back in the day when I was doing weekend sports at CKNW, believe it or not, now we complain when the games aren't on TV. Back then, they weren't all on the radio. And there was a preseason game that wasn't going to be on the radio. And Jim Robson suggested I go up in the, the gondola and just do a practice run. And I said, sure, that'd be great. He said, yeah, it's going to be empty. But then about an hour before the game, he called and said he was planning to just come up and watch there. But feel free, go ahead and just call it anyway. <laughs> I said, there's no way. There's no way I'm going to sit there and do a mock broadcast besides Jim Robinson. So I I quickly kiboshed that deal. But the first game I ever did, for real, was a pay-per-view game. And it was a really, it felt like it was going to be a nothing game. They were doing four pay-per-view games that year. 
and I was competing with Mike Goldberg, who went on to UFC fame, to do play-by-play on them, and they decided he would do three of them and I would do one. Well, the one I got was against the Islanders, and when the schedule came out, I wasn't that excited about it. But then it turned out to be Trevor Linden's return to Vancouver because he'd been jettisoned to the island. So it turned out to be a really big game. I can't tell you anything about the five minutes leading into the broadcast. I can't tell you anything about the three hours of the broadcast because I was just so full of adrenaline, stressed out. I had Ryan Walter as my color guy, and I didn't realize that when he talked back to the producer on his talk back button, I wasn't supposed to hear it that they had it wired wrong. And so for the entire game, I'd be trying to call it, and Ryan would be, I'd hear him on talkback saying, yeah, yeah, go back. So go back to the entry of the blue line. And I, you know, I, that, that's where the play started. And this was all blurring into my headset. I thought it was just something I was going to have to get used to if I was going to be a play-by-play guy. Uh, and then I found out later I wasn't supposed to be hearing all these conversations Ryan was having with the producer. As much as it was a memorable night, it was a night I don't remember much about. It was a pretty cool moment, to be honest. And, you know, there are a lot of emotions that go into that because I believe the the history of hockey play-by-play in Vancouver is unmatched in any market around the NHL, whether you look at Jim Robson, Jim Houston, John Shorthouse, Rick Ball, the list goes on. We have been very lucky to have excellent play-by-play broadcasters here in Vancouver. So, you know, in many ways... I think I was set up well for that because when you grow up in Vancouver and you listen to these guys, you're learning from the best. And then, you know, starting in the industry and, you know, getting to know Shorty and Baller and Jim Houston and Jim Robson a little bit, you're able to learn things from these guys as well. And I think we can credit Jim Robson for the great pipeline of play-by-play guys in Vancouver just because he was the absolute best and everyone that has come after him has been influenced by him. And, And that has clearly had an impact on the broadcasters that have come out of this market. But yeah, that moment, it it wasn't too intimidating for me, to be honest, but it was just sort of a a really cool moment that, you know, I can remember sitting in the booth. It's the Canucks and the Oilers, my first regular season game in the NHL broadcasting. It's Connor McDavid on the other side. And it was sort of like a, wow, I actually get to do this moment. And, uh, And then it just went from there. I would imagine that in the first couple of weeks, months, and even seasons that it uh, eventually starts to slow down. And usually that's thanks to one or two people that maybe take you under the wing and say, listen, kid, I'm going to show you some places that maybe you couldn't see otherwise. Jim Robson, I'll start with you. Was there that one person or people that took you under their wing and helped you elevate your game? Bill Stevenson, I guess, uh, I worked with in 1956 till 1960. He was very fair. I did baseball with him, and he'd let me do three innings every night. And then when he went to football training camp, I would do the ball games. And so he gave me lots of opportunities, and he certainly influenced how we prepared and did things. So I guess Bill Stevenson was probably the most influential person in the early part of my career. Jim Robson was a, was a teacher for me without ever being a, like a school teacher. He was a mentor because he allowed me into his world and he allowed me to, to look over his shoulder and watch what he did and how he did his work and how meticulous he was. I bet to this day I still keep a scorebook during the game that is pretty much identical to what Jim kept because that's where I first found out about it. So he's always been a good friend and he was such a great broadcaster and has been so good at allowing me and other people too into his world to understand how he was so proficient at it. I used to have great talks with Danny Gallivan and he was wonderful, just very sharing. I spent a long time around two guys who were buddies from Peterborough, Gary Green, who I worked with and who is one of the youngest coaches in the history of the NHL, and Roger Nielsen. And they were best of friends. 
but also just really good, solid hockey people. And I would work with Gary and we would hang around with Roger. I ended up living on the street next to Roger. He was just so sharing in everything about the game. And what I found as the years went by, that I was concentrating on learning the wrong things. I was all about, I was all about making sure that I knew everybody's name and where they were from and where they played junior and that sort of thing. And it was Roger who got me on the path of understand what you're watching. Everybody can memorize the name. Anybody can do that. People have redundancies in their job every day that they're really good at. But you need to understand the game you're watching and why things are happening and the strategy of the game. And so, you know, both of those guys, we'd spend hours and hours talking about the games we watched or were going to watch and the strategy of the game. Those are a few of the people who along the way really inspired me and taught me a lot. The business has changed so much, it's become more entertainment. When I listen to recordings of my broadcasts from the 70s, they're pretty dull. It's just one voice, one guy, and I was very traditional, conservative style. But I, I think I would always tell broadcasters, especially in radio, there's always somebody listening. Don't take it like it's trivial. Maybe it's a meaningless game in the standings. Maybe it's at an awkward time but there's always somebody listening. And think of a person listening, the information they want, the score, the time, the teams involved. If it's in hockey, where the puck is in relation to the goaltenders. And that's another thing. I think you should do a lot of preparation. That's so important. Don't have any surprises during a game. With me doing uh, hockey, I found, too, following the puck as I did, I paid a little attention to what's going on defensively. I was always following the puck and making it my objective to follow that because that's generally where the action is. So that was my big objective going in, uh, follow the puck, get the numbers right, and try not to blow any of the goals <laughs> that are scored or not scored. Rob Fay, you have an incoming call from France. The caller seemed to be upset that you initially tried to call him in the middle of the night. Would you like to allow access to J.P. McConnell? Oh my god, he actually got my message. This is fantastic. Yes, please, put him through. Shall I play the National Anthem of France for added effect? What? No. Just, no, just put him through. I was just trying to help. Oh my god, this is not happening. Uh, J.P., first and foremost, thank you for joining us. Uh, of course, a lot of guys that have broadcast Vancouver Canucks hockey play-by-play -play here on this call. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your time doing Canuck play-by-play. It'll be a short interview. It will not be a short interview. JP, maybe I'll start with this one if you don't mind. Uh, I want to talk about preparation because the reality is, is you are, in my mind, a lifelong football guy, a Canadian Football League icon. And then all of a sudden you look back and you did some Vancouver Canuck games. What was it like for you preparing for hockey, maybe by comparison to doing football? The preparation, I tried to move it the same way as I did football, which is I have Gads of notes in front of me, da-da-da-da. Jim Robson used to use his um, cleaners shirt boards to make his notes. Shorty did the same. Huey did the same. I mean, it, everybody has a system. I tried to use the system I knew best, and it wasn't a good idea. I did a depth chart, so I had four lines, and the, this guy plays left wing, but he'd come out on the right wing, and then I was backwards and upside down, and, and I did a few of those great lines from the Leaf games. Here they come, all five of them, you know. It was really tough. I tried hard. I did what I could to be the best at it, but I don't know how many people listened to the whole game when I was doing it. 
From 1960 to 64, I did the BC Lions football, Vancouver Mounties baseball, and Vancouver Canuck hockey. And there were overlapping parts of the season, and football was the primary sport at that time, so it would bounce baseball if they both had a game on the same date. And I remember doing a football game in Calgary on a Saturday and doing a hockey game in Portland, Oregon on a Sunday. So the sports are all so different. I felt football was the most difficult because uh, there's so many players involved and you have to know something about each player and the rosters are so much bigger than the other sports. Jim Houston, you did baseball in addition to hockey and a number of other sports. I can't imagine in addition to having to have the encyclopedia mentally to do all of these different sports, what it must do to you from a scheduling perspective? Because as you just heard Jim, he was doing hockey, he was doing football, he was doing baseball. I can only imagine that your schedule was uh, equally as tough at times, no? Absolutely. I haven't done it for a while, and largely because I've chosen not to work as much to take some time off which I didn't do early in my career. I was just so hungry to broadcast absolutely everything and try and be the best that I could be at it. One year when I had the overlap, I was working for TSN and we were broadcasting playoff hockey games and we were also broadcasting the Blue Jay games. It was the year that I decided that I better pick one sport over the other because in the month of April, I did 29 games in 29 different cities. In a different city, every night for 29 days, one one day doing hockey, the next day doing baseball, and back to hockey, and uh, had a young son at the time and thought at the end of that month, better make a decision to just do one. This is not going to work very well. Rick Ball, I won't get into your multiple sport capabilities. I want to talk a little bit about when you were in Vancouver and you were working the afternoon drive at Team 1040. You were doing all of the hosting deals and then you would go across the street and broadcast Vancouver Canuck games as a play-by-play man. Can you talk about the juggling act that that brought on? The difficult part about doing a talk show and being a play-by-play guy is when you're doing play-by-play, you're, you're calling the action. You're really not an opinion guy, uh, and you're around the team all the time, so it's sort of one role. And then the talk show role, you're supposed to have opinions, and, and everything's supposed to be black and white, and there's a lot of debate. And it's completely opposite to really what you're doing when you're doing play-by-play. So there can be a little bit of friction there because it makes for a good talk show host doesn't necessarily make for a good play-by-play guy and vice versa. Uh, so that can be a tricky tightrope to walk uh, when you have to do both jobs. And I, you know, I was never really a flamethrower in terms of talk show. I wasn't one of those guys even when I wasn't doing play-by-play. So I don't think it was as tough for me as it might be for some people who uh, take on that persona when they're doing a talk show. But uh, but there was a tricky balance there at times to uh, – Uh, you know, because both jobs are are different. John, you weren't a part necessarily of a talk show, but you were a part of really what I consider to be an institution in British Columbia. That was Sports Page. And it was, you know, Barry McDonald, Paul Carson, Craig McEwen, Don Taylor. I mean, it was really, there was nothing that could parallel it with all due respect to everybody else that's listening. Did you feel that there was a little bit of a stigma when all of a sudden you became the Canuck play-by-play guy that everybody looked at John Shorthouse as, oh, just one of the guys from Sports Page? I mean, was there a transition where fans had to get used to seeing you as a broadcaster doing play-by-play as opposed to just giving the highlights at 11 o'clock? The only stigma was that I hadn't paid my dues, and I fully admit that to this day. Uh, And so there was some disgruntlement, if you will, from other people who had their designs on the job. I realized it to be a fact. I don't apologize for it because I wasn't going to turn it down once it was offered. So that was the only stigma I really had to to overcome because the fact of the matter is the day I got the job, um, I had no junior experience. 
I had no experience other than one Canuck game on pay-per-view, and, and lo and behold, CKNW tabbed me to be the next guy once Jim Houston left full-time to, to Sportsnet. I decided that I would just block out the noise. Uh, it was easier then. There was no social media, and I don't know how I would have dealt with any sort of criticism or backlash had it been in today's age because I wasn't that good. I needed years to start to find my voice. And so I'm glad they, they stuck with me. I, I think I've developed into a, you know, a competent play-by-play guy. And with 22 years under my belt, uh, I love doing it every day still. That's really the only thing I had to overcome in terms of stigma was the fact that I had no play-by-play experience on my resume. I would like to think that that worked out pretty well for you, Shorty. Um, <laughs> listen, guys, uh, this podcast is designed for half an hour. There's no way I'm stopping. If you guys are cool with it, I'd like to keep going because there's a few things that I'd like to maybe, I don't want to call it a speed round, but I want to at least go around the horn a couple of times to use a baseball adage. And I wanted to talk about everything from your favorite city, maybe have a crazy moment from the road. I'd just like to kind of go around and just really, let's start with favorite cities. And it's okay if you guys overlap, maybe you can give me a little bit of a different perspective on the city if you've already heard it from somebody else. But let's just start. Abs, I will start with you. Walk me through one of your favorite NHL cities that you've broadcast from and, and maybe even a special moment that incorporates with that city. What an incredible experience it was to recognize a Habs legend and all that came with it and seeing Mrs. Belleville and how she reacted that night and uh, just being part of a, an atmosphere like that. Something special about calling games in Montreal. So that would be the Canadian one probably. And in the States, Los Angeles with the, the feel and the vibes there. New York certainly would be... Uh, tops from an arena standpoint, Madison Square Garden, and then overall city, Chicago is my favorite road city. Just something about the building there for the actual games and then what it possesses as a, as a city. For me, Chicago is my favorite road city. To me, number one is always New York City. I love New York. It's one of my favorite places on the planet. I've had the good fortune in my life uh, to visit many of the greatest cities, not just in North America, but around the world. There's no place I I like going more than New York. I love everything about it. I love the vibe in New York City. I love the culture. I love the music scene in New York City. And on top of all that, Madison Square Garden is one of the great stadiums on the planet. So to walk into that building, and now it's been beautifully renovated, and uh, the broadcast location there is just terrific. So uh, the history in that building and just the energy in the city of New York, I love that trip. And the great part about it is we often get to spend four or five days there because teams that swing through New York City when you're doing one team, like a regional show, they usually play all three teams in the course of four or five days. So you spend a fair bit of time in New York, unlike most cities where you're sort of in and out. So uh, I love that trip. I love going to Nashville. I really enjoy Chicago as well. Uh, there's so many great cities in Canada. Yeah, that was a big one for me personally and for Corey Hirsch, my color guy as well, because he is a former Ranger. So that was a cool moment for both of us to walk into that fabled building and you know, look up at that that iconic ceiling. Uh, and then it also helped that, in my mind, it is the best building to broadcast games in the entire National Hockey League. There's a newer press box that they've built that's uh, like a, a hanging gondola kind of, but it's, you know, right over the ice, but relatively low. The sight lines are better than any other arena in the NHL. And, you know, you walk into that building and it just oozes history, whether you think of the classic sporting events that have happened there, concerts, whatever it might be, anyone you can think of that is well known has performed or played there. So, you know, to be, you know, conducting a broadcast that emanated out of uh, the world's most famous arena, it was certainly something special. And I enjoyed every time we've got to go back. 
the first time, first year I was there, maybe I got into a very awkward situation. I worked alone and part of my routine was to interview the opposing coach to use before the game. In this case, it was Emil Francis of the Rangers. So well before the game, I went to the Rangers offices. Madison Square Garden is an amazing complex. The ice is on the fifth floor. Anyway, I go to the Ranger office and talk to Emil Francis, who I met before, and he was very cooperative, and we did our interview. And after the interview, I'm about to leave their offices, and Dennis Ball, a longtime Ranger scout or farm director or whatever his title was, was working with the Rangers. He was there, and he said, oh, I'll tell you a shortcut to get down to the dressing rooms where I was going next to ice level. He said, just go through that metal door. And you'll walk around the end of the arena on a slanted walkway, and then you'll come to another door, and then you'll be right down at ice level. So I go through that door, and I'm walking around, and this is about, I don't know, an hour before game time maybe, maybe more than that. I get to the other end, and the door's locked. So now I go back towards the ranger offices, and the metal door on that end is locked. Now I'm trapped in there. No one knows I'm there except Dennis Ball, and I'm working alone, so I go back to the door at the far end, and I start kicking at this metal door. I kick it and kick it until a janitor opens it up and said, what are you doing in here? So I got out, and I was able to get up and do the game, but I could have been in there all through the hockey game, and nobody knew about it. (laughs) This was in lieu of the morning skate. The Canucks were playing the Devils in New Jersey that night. And so this was sort of a team building, this is reality, guys. You know, this is bigger than hockey kind of thing. And so they issued the morning skate that day, and and that's why we went on this trip. But we were on the elevator coming down, and I was with about 10 other people, mostly players, and the elevator got stuck. And we were in there for a good long while. Now the New York Fire Department had to come out and rescue us from this elevator. (laughs) The moment that made it memorable was we had honestly just had the most moving probably hour of our lives. Just thinking about the trauma and I don't even know, I can't even put into words what people must have gone through on September 11th, 2001. And we were about 90 seconds into the elevator being stuck and realizing we were in trouble. (laughs) And one of the players, despite having just been through this incredibly moving, sobering experience, 90 seconds into being a stuck elevator said, this is bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) he might have worn number 44 (laughs) my favorite was that the old chicago city in chicago and had nothing to do with the game it was the anthem with that gigantic organ they had in the old chicago arena i've never felt an atmosphere like that in my life i never did a playoff game with the canucks because they weren't anywhere close to the playoffs in my tenure here but i remember the shivers standing there listening to the anthem and and the the walls just reverberating you wondered if the old building was going to collapse and what was my seat for that game they had old fold-away chairs there in the press box and i had one with the the vinyl seat was all torn and ripped so i put a chicago phone book on the seat to sit on. So I'm sitting on this phone book on, on this worn-out chair to, to do that play-by-play. So I'll always remember that as being the most unique of my trips. I can't wait for the opportunity to do games in New York. There's just a special vibe at Madison Square Garden and just walking around Manhattan. One playoff year, I think it was 2012, I spent 45 straight days in New York in Manhattan. I felt like a resident. It was spectacular. I truly enjoyed it. Uh, I love Chicago. I love Boston. The NHL has great, great cities. And then just if you go back to where the game is, there is nothing like broadcasting a hockey game on a Saturday night in any Canadian city. 
it's just got a, a special feel to it. And quite often it's really miserably cold, but it doesn't matter. It's hockey night in Canada. It's Saturday night. And it's in the middle of a country that loves the game. Jim, before we go on, I do want to talk about the current state of hockey, because you're getting ready to broadcast a bunch of games that will have no fans in the stands. So you're talking about the ambiance and going into these certain venues that are usually known for just energy and intensity. I mean, Ron Barnett talking about Chicago and their stadium. Now I think of what you're about to embark on. Can you walk me through what you're expecting and how are you ever going to broadcast with the same energy when you don't have the fans to really play off of? I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. I don't think any of us are. I think it's going to be because the games mean so much. Like this is not going to be a little exhibition tournament. This is a tournament for the Stanley Cup. And right from the get-go, they're going to go to 0-60 to in about two seconds. And the games are going to be, they could be really good. I think when the guys figure it out and get the atmosphere figured out, then the games will start to get really, really good and competitive. And so I think it's important for the integrity of the game and the broadcast to make sure that we do the same kind of things that we would always do. I'm just not sure what it's going to be like to take a pause. I'm not sure what it's, you know, whether it's going to be all talk or what we're going to do. I would say that what we think now is that the first game you hear when they restart is going to be very different from the 50th because we're going to figure some things out as we go along, what works, what doesn't work. So to a certain extent, it's exciting because Rob, it's going to be a night at the improv. This has never been done before. And we're going to have to figure it out. But the game itself on the ice won't change. And so the approach to the competitiveness and the integrity of the broadcast won't change at all. So often for me that, you know, it is the energy in the building that lifts your energy up and you try and match that. But if it's not there, other than the play going on on the ice, where do you set that point? Do you crank the spinal tap amplifier up to 11 or are you going to sound silly doing it that way? So. I really don't know what what the secret is going to be. I think it's something that we're going to have to experiment with just to figure it out as it goes and listen back. I always advise young broadcasters to listen to yourself as often as possible. Watch your show or listen to your radio show. And uh, I think that'll be a key uh, in terms of these broadcasts, just to see how it sounds and figure out what the best way to deliver your uh, your broadcast will be under these circumstances. Here they do a very good job of mixing the sound they're actually putting sound into the soccer games here now and it's amazing how well and how quickly they fit a goal with the crowd sound and the crowd reaction and they even have it down to which team is the home team so obviously if the home team scores the the crowd sound is bigger and if the visitors score the the hometown crowd sits down on their hands and says nothing larshite used to say to me we had a cough switch between us with two buttons on it and so if I wanted to cough, I can push a button and cough and nobody hears it, hopefully. He used to do things like he'd push both buttons. And he'd say, shut up. What he was telling me was, let the crowd carry what you just said. And I think Houston's very good at that. Shorty's very good at that. I think Shorty's the best of them all, to be honest. But you need to let the people hear what's going on. JP, not sorry, JP, not to cut you off here. But um, Shorty, speaking of this... I want to get back to something that we touched on a little bit earlier, but I really want to circle back because I know there's a lot of guys on this call that had that person that really took them under their wing, a mentor, somebody that really pushed them when they were maybe even a little uncertain as to how they were going to fit into the big scheme of things here. He mentioned Tom Larshide. Would that be fair to say? I mean, who was your mentor? Well, Tom Larshide, uh, I was a fish out of water. I I had no idea what I was doing. I was just... 
you know, the, the funny thing is that my first year was just a disaster, like hockey-wise. I think they had 59 points, 58 points. The team was terrible. Uh, there was a year they had Mike Keenan to start the year, fired him at the All-Star break, brought in Mark Crawford. Uh, Mark Messier was the captain. It was an unmitigated disaster of a season, but I couldn't have been any happier. <laughs> I was like, wait, where are we going next? You know, we're going to New York. Great, Boston. Never been to Boston. And Tom, you know, he, he helped me immensely. Jim Robson traveled that year as well. That was the only year we crossed paths. And uh, we sat together on the, on the plane for a year. And that was really cool to see how he went about his business, to see his, his habits. He had his piece of cardboard. I don't know where it came from. I think it was part of an old cereal box or something. And he had his three-colored pen. And he would dutifully write down his notes in three different colors on his piece of cardboard for the broadcast that night. But I just soaked it all in. And so, you know, it was kind of the old guard, I guess, that helped me through as a 28-year-old in my first year with Tom doing the color and me sitting with Jim on the plane. It's been uh, just 22 years of of, uh, just sheer joy. I can't think of doing anything else with my life, to be honest. Roger Lajoie, who is on the air on the Fan Sports Network, you know, he is a staple working with routers as well, covering everything from the Super Bowl to the NCAA Final Four to the Stanley Cup to the World Series, you name it. He has covered it in Canada and locally. So he was a guy that was seemingly bigger than life, and he really took the time to help me out to further my understanding of what it takes to be successful, to act as a mentor for me, and to also be very willing to put me on the air. And I was junior hockey with the old Toronto St. Michael's Majors. It was while I was going to broadcast school at Seneca College. He had to live with me not being able to be there every road game per se. I was there almost every home game, if not every home game. But he had to live with a college kid that had uh, other responsibilities, and he lived with all of that. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say there was one or two people that, that you know, quote-unquote, took me under their wing. They were all very, very supportive. Um, but, you know, I worked with Rick Ball in Kelowna, and I mentioned my first ever job in radio was doing the color commentary for the Rockets broadcasts. Well, Rick was the play-by-play guy for the Rockets at that time. And that, at that time, Rick and I were joining the Canucks broadcast family at the same time. So we already had a long-standing relationship. We were both entering a new dream job experience that we both had had for so many years as kids growing up in, in British Columbia. We were in Spokane and there was a big snowstorm blowing in as the game was progressing. And Bruce Hamilton, the owner and GM, was on the bus. He goes, listen, Rick, he goes, there's a snowstorm coming in tonight. we got to get out of here right after the game as soon as possible. Your post-game show better be short and get down here so we can get going. I'm like, okay. Game ends. I say, wrap it up. Rockets beat the Chiefs 5-2. That's it from Spokane. Good night, everybody. Gather up my gear. Get on the bus. And then I realized I forgot because in radio, especially small-town radio back in the day, you'd have to do a voice that they'd run the next morning highlighting the game. Forgot to do it. The bus pulls away. They stop at a place to pick up some food for the guys to eat on the bus. And as they stop, I hop out into the parking lot because I don't want to get on my cell phone and start screaming into the phone a report for the next morning with all the guys listening. I think i got a few minutes here. I'll do it. Now I'm standing in the parking lot. In the meantime, I've switched into my sweats and my T-shirt. So I'm out there in the snow. It's like up to my ankles at this point doing a voice or report back to the studio. Guys recording it back in Kelowna to run the next day. And as I'm halfway through the report, Jason DeLorme had a couple of goals. It was a big night for Brett McLean. All of a sudden, I hear behind me, bus starts pulling away. My ID, my money, everything is on the bus. I've got nothing. I'm in a T-shirt and sweatpants in a snowstorm, standing in a parking lot, 
I don't know, but at McDonald's or wherever they were, I, now I start running. And I have one of those old, this is how long ago it was, one of those old big brick phones like Michael Douglas and Wall Street. So I'm running down the street, catching up to the bus, pounding on the bus, and hey, screaming profanities. And, of course, the whole time I haven't hung up the phone, they're recording it back at the radio station. <laughs> bus stop, they're all laughing at me. And that ran on our radio station over under approximately 10,000 times. <laughs> I can totally relate having ridden the buses in the minor leagues for well over a decade. And I have heard those sounds before. I love that you were able to nail the bus. Uh, gentlemen, let's just keep this moving. I really appreciate your time. A few more questions here, and one of them is on player accessibility, because I know that over time, that players have become a lot more guarded. They've got PR guys in front of them. They've got organizations around them. It is really hard to, I guess, quote-unquote, get to players. Bernie, I know that back in the day, you had unbelievable accessibility to players. Can you speak on that, and maybe we'll get a couple of different perspectives? I think so, Rob, and I think, you know, it was carte blanche. You didn't have the restrictions you have today. You could do interviews anytime you showed up at a Canuck game, or I recall at CFTO when I was in Toronto that I have a picture on my wall, John Bassett at the end of the season couldn't make the team picture, and the Toronto Maple Leafs asked me to sit in, and I have the Toronto Maple Leaf team picture from 67, 68, and there I am in the front row. And I remember Johnny Bauer was next to me and George Armstrong, and it was just a barrel of laughs. And after that, we're doing interviews, and we went to the Maple Leaf hot stove lounge, and a bunch of the players had a beer, and we sat with them. Like, that doesn't happen anymore. And uh, as a young broadcaster in Toronto, there I was with George Armstrong and Johnny Bauer and Dwayne Rupp, Ronnie Ellis, uh, even Harold Ballard came in his gruff style and joined us. That doesn't happen today. Players are so guarded these days. You know, the way teams operate from a media perspective is very different. No, your access to the players is much more limited. You know, back when Tony was on the beat and, and Jim was doing the play-by-play, all of the media traveled with the team. And now you're at a point where, um, you know, it's exclusively the rights-holding broadcasters that travel with the team. And, you know, in our job, we have to be critical of these guys. So I wouldn't want to befriend a player and then have him come to me and be like, hey, why are you saying these things about my game on the radio? And, and then you have a conflict of interest there where you maybe feel like because you're friends with a guy, you don't want to criticize him as much as you might have to to be, you know, journalistically uh, accurate in your in your coverage. So, you know, professional distance is something that it works well with the way that the game is covered now. But that said, there are still opportunities to build relationships with players. There are guys that you talk to and get along with just because, you know, you travel together, you stay in the same hotels, you see these guys a lot of the time throughout the year more than you see your own family. In all of your travels, have any of you guys ever been starstruck? I mean, there's got to be one person that stopped in your tracks and made you say, man, this is, this is pretty impressive. Well, I think one would have been Muhammad Ali. And when he fought George Cervello in Vancouver in 1972, and here again, Rob, this is an era that uh, we had access to these people, and they were trying to sell tickets to the heavyweight fight at the Pacific Coliseum. And Angelo Dundee was very cooperative. And I remember my cameraman, we arranged on a Sunday morning to go and do an interview. And if you'll recall, Muhammad Ali in his training days then was in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, chopping down trees. Well, we mentioned this to Angelo Dundee. He said, well, come down tomorrow morning, which was Sunday. We uh, met at the Georgia Hotel at 
10 a.m. or something like that, Muhammad Ali said, we're not going to just do the interview here. We're going to go find some trees. He hopped in the van with us. So there I am with my cameraman, and there's Muhammad Ali sitting across from me, and we're talking about the plan, the interview. We went to North Vancouver, and he said, for heaven's sake, don't say where we are because I don't want to be sued. He went in and chopped down a couple of trees, and I remember one tree, it didn't fall all the way, and he deadpan looked right at the camera and said, those Canadians are tough. George Savallo will not fall. Starstruck? Yes. I mean, there's Muhammad Ali. We're riding in the same van. It's a Sunday morning, and uh, boy, you'd never be able to do that today. Wayne Gretzky, because I was in awe of his ability. He was the best player in the league at the time, and he always had about 30 or 40 journalists clustered around him, so he could never get a one-on-one. I was kind of thankful because I was uh, quite intimidated. I, I, I might not have known where to go in a one-on-one with Wayne Gretzky, who was the superstar at the time. My favorite player of all those times, though, was Garth Butcher of the Canucks because he played his junior in Regina when I was doing Pat games, so I got to know him a little bit in Regina. Dan, I want to ask you about who you looked up to when it came to, and I think I actually read this before, you had mentioned, because every broadcaster studies other broadcasters, or at least you probably should in one way, shape, or form. I think if memory serves me correct, you said it was Jim Robson, Vin Scully, and Larry King, which I thought was a really neat trio and kind of a unique trio of guys. I think the first thing I wanted to know was what made them so damn good on the radio with Robson for example why was he so effortlessly on top of the game why did he make it sound so easy and there were many reasons for it as I studied it it all stemmed from his word economy all of us who have tried to develop the hockey play-by-play skill desperately try at first just to keep up with the game Robson He was able to edit perfectly on the fly, assess what was needed and what wasn't so he could stay on top of it. I probably could write a thesis on this, but there was a reason he always sounded in control. And he's the greatest radio hockey play-by-play man ever. Scully was the same. But in baseball, there's so much storytelling that goes on between the pitches. How was Scully able to weave those stories, quickly interject with a a pitch that was fouled off and then resume the story and then another pitch and then more story and then oh the ball is hit for a double and he calls that excitement he elaborates on it he sets up the game again and then he transitions back to his story so conversational he had an amazing knack of knowing when to start a story how to time it to the end of the half inning and of course a wonderful storyteller king different again i'm talking on radio king the art of interviewing i learned all off him and i could write a thesis on what made him the best at that craft i listened to them all i listened closely they didn't know it but they especially uh robson and king they were my teachers it's a total great trio of people to follow and i know jim hates hearing this kind of stuff but uh i i gotta ask you dan just to keep you here for a second you talk about the ability to do radio and television, and I know primarily with those three guys, you just talked about them from a radio perspective, but there was really something impressive about Jim Robson, and, and we could say that about a few of the guys on this call, but just the ability to transition from one medium to the other. I always marveled at Jim Robson when he went from the radio booth to the TV booth. His call on a line rush, for example, would be quite a bit different. On TV, he might say, that's Thomas Gradeen with the puck, Smeal was on his right, and that's Rhoda on the far left so he knew the viewer could see a player but 
they obviously wouldn't know which player it was, and he was just helping the viewer along. So I think the truth is television play-by-play, -play, when done well, is often a hybrid between the two mediums. The speed and the size of the puck, which you don't see on TV as much as you might think, that puck, you need to help them along. I often hear TV announcers who might say there's a pass on the left and a pass on the right. Well, everybody knows that part. I know when I was doing TV games, I tried so hard to avoid that. Uh, an example I can give you, if a team was on the power play and the point men were passing it back and forth, I wouldn't say, well, to the left point and to the right point. If the player on the far side had it and he moved it to my side, I would just say, and he moves it over here to such and such. So I'm trying to accent the pictures. The challenge is to provide the information without insulting the people who can see it. Dan, that's great insight. It's true. The TV and the hockey medium, if done well, is pretty much a hybrid. There was one broadcaster that I always enjoyed listening to when watching one of his broadcasts, and it was Jim Lampley, who did the play-by-play -play for many years on HBO's live boxing. I just felt that when there were those big moments in the event, whether it was a knockout, whether it was a referee's decision, he did such a great job of letting the event be the moment. But at the same time, he knew when the ideal opportunity presented itself to, as a broadcaster, add to the excitement, bring in good energy levels. Jim Lampley in the, the boxing world certainly is a broadcaster that comes to mind for me. I want to finish up, and gosh, I could be here all night, but I know you guys got stuff to do. I want to finish up just with a real simple question, and I'll ask it of a few of you. If you had to pick one sport that you never got the chance to broadcast, and I know some of you guys have done multiple sports, we've talked about it earlier, but if there was one sport out there that you could still broadcast, or at least have the chance to broadcast, what would it be? You are with me on this, Faye. I know I'm a big fan of professional wrestling, and I have been since I was a kid. So something outside of my field where, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily be the best person to do it. But if you think about the opportunity to broadcast pro wrestling or broadcast a, a WrestleMania or something like that, that's something that would be appealing to me that some people might not realize that, that I'm certainly uh, a fan of and enjoy as well. Baseball, I would never be able to do. I tip my cap to all of you, like you, Rob, who do baseball, because I'm not a storyteller. I'm not a fill-the-time kind of guy. I have some short attention span issues where I need the action to be going on, and I need to, you know, I need something to look at that's happening. And I go face off to whistle, if you will, and sometimes I just shut my brain off because uh, I get now I'm not hearing what my color is saying because I'm just I'm kind of checked out for a moment because there's no action going on. So baseball would be problematic for me. I think that the only sport I could probably do and would like to do, and I'm envious of those who've done it, like Dan Murphy's done it, is golf. I got to jump in here because, to be honest with you, the NHL would be obviously one of the pinnacles of any broadcaster that's involved in sports. But for me and John Abbott, I'm sorry, but I get jealous of you around the holidays every year because I would love to broadcast just that sheer raw love for the game when it comes to the World Juniors. Any Canadian can attest to part of our holiday tradition, really, right? Like, it's Boxing Day. What does that mean? It's World Juniors. We're going to follow Canada. So I'm not that different than anybody sitting there watching the tournament every year with their friends and family and making sure they don't miss a moment of uh, the Canadian games. Therefore, I just couldn't believe the opportunity was presented to me. And, and I feel so fortunate 
again, it lines up actually with uh, John Shorthouse because I was not an 82 game guy and not completely married to the NHL schedule. That was what presented me the first opportunity to call the World Juniors in Helsinki. Absolutely a thrill of a lifetime. You know, I loved every second of doing the first one in Helsinki. Now it's uh, five in a row that we've done as a team for the World Juniors. And it, it, the only thing that makes it better than the first one is that Canada has captured two golds along the way through the five that we've done. And even though witnessing other countries win gold is stellar there's just something completely different when you witness and get to describe a canadian gold for a country it's just an unbelievable once in a lifetime it feels like opportunity and so you you really need to embrace it like that each and every time you get the call and take nothing for granted and it's just been uh, i can't even believe that we get to do it a dream come true from that sense as well gentlemen what a thrill I'm going to give the last word here in this conversation with all you fine gentlemen to Jim Robson. I've asked you earlier on, do you remember your first game? Can you walk me through your last game as broadcaster for the Vancouver Canucks? It was a televised game in 1999 at uh, the new Vancouver Arena, then called General Motors. Only one other person knew it was my last game, and that was my wife. And we had talked it over and said, this is it. It was a good time to step out. The Canucks were in disarray, ownership, management, coaching. They had some good star players on the roster, Mark Messier and Alex McGillney and, of course, Pavel Bury, and they had great players, but they didn't make the playoffs. And the last game of the last two seasons that I did were not good. The telecasts I didn't think were that great either, but I had made up my mind. I was 47 years in the business. I'd done a lot of travel probably more travel than anybody else in the business because of Vancouver's location in relation to the other cities in the NHL. So I told my wife, no, this will be my last game. So I did the game. I did a little wrap-up at the end of the game, and I used a quote from a baseball man, Cedric Callis, who was the GM of the Yankees at one time, and he used to be in Vancouver way back in the late 50s, and one of his favorite sayings was, it's the downs in life that make the ups in life. So I said, well, as far as the Vancouver hockey fan goes, uh, this year was a downer, but the downs in life make the ups in life, and there'll be good times in the future. And that was my last spiel, and I walked out of the rink, and that was it. Perfect. Nothing more to be said. Gentlemen, I appreciate this. You have spent an hour with me, and that was far more than I asked initially, so thank you for your patience. It's just uh, the little kid in me, perhaps. I mean, I have had conversations over the last hour with guys that have said, great, save Luongo. He'll play on crutches. They've slayed the dragon and so many moments that uh, are just ingrained in my heart. Thank you, gentlemen. Until we do this again, maybe not on this scale, but uh, hopefully you guys will answer the call when I make it out to you. Thank you so much for this, and uh, I appreciate you being around on my first podcast. I got a lot more episodes, but what a way to start it. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Thanks. Okay, Rob. Bye-bye. Okay. Goodbye. All right, buddy. Thanks. Well, there it is. Episode one of Ron Nation Podcast. I hope you got something out of it. That was an awesome hour for me, as I just mentioned seconds ago. But I need you to subscribe. I need you to download. I need you to share. We got to get the word out because every week I'm going to put this kind of effort into Rob Fay Nation Podcast. Hey, maybe not 12 guys every week. Maybe not even six. But I promise you, in a world full of takes and just, you know, opinion... 
I want to bring you stories. And, and not to knock anybody else, but I want to make this one different because I want to make it a part of your weekly psyche. It's Wednesday. You know Rob Finnation podcast is out and you immediately go and grab it so that you can listen. We're going to share stories, aren't we? We're going to have a good time. We'll have some laughs as well. I want to hear your feedback. I want to read it. I want to listen to it, whatever you've got for me. So you can always hit me up on Twitter at Rob Fay, which is R-O-B-F as in Frank A-I. You can uh, get in touch with me. I got a number of ways that you can do so. And uh, more than anything, thank you. My thanks as well goes out to Jay Swing, the best mixed man in the business. Thank you so much for being a part of this. And for everybody out there that took time to listen to the past hour, thank you. I'll see you in a week. I'm Rob Fay, and this has been Rob Fay Nation Podcast.